As we've been working through Matthew's gospel, one of the things that we recognize is that Jesus taught and spoke often about the costs, about the demands, about the requirements of, of discipleship. He spoke often about what he expects from any who would follow him as his disciple. And more we hear, the more we hear him speak on the subject, the clearer it becomes to any of us with eyes to see and with ears to hear that submitting to Jesus as Lord by becoming his disciple is, for all of us, the single most monumental, the single most exacting and demanding, the single most costly decision that any person can make. And this is for a number of reasons, both internal and external. For one, following Jesus demands, it demands a t- complete and total life change. Discipleship is not simply sprinkling a little bit of sweet, sentimental Jesus upon our largely unchanged lives, desires, and passions, but discipleship is a call from Jesus for the entirety of our life. Discipleship requires the denial of self in favor of striving in the power of the Holy Spirit to obey Christ, Christ's word, Christ's command. Discipleship calls for repentance from sin and turning to Jesus in faith and in trust, committing the fullness of our lives to his honor and to his service. Discipleship necessitates a declaration of war against the sinful passions, the sinful desires that once dominated your heart and still seek even now and still campaign even now to recapture your heart. As disciples, Jesus commands that we vigorously engage in a battle to put to death what is earthly in us, as the Apostle Paul exhorted the Colossians in chapter 3. When he said this, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. To follow Christ means significant earthly sacrifices and life life changes must be made as you come out from among the world and live as one who is separated unto the Lord, different, distinct, and holy. Disciples in a world that is obsessed with and committed to self-idolatry, Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and in so doing swim against the earth's tide. In a world that is preoccupied with living your best life now to getting all you can in the here and now to, to throwing yourself headlong into whatever people think will make them happy or promote their personal happiness, Jesus calls upon all of you who would be his disciple to take up your cross. Or in other words, to die to yourself and their commitment to such self-indulgence. And in its place, look to Christ. In a world where everyone wants to be their own God, everybody hopes to be their own boss, their own authority, 
to govern their lives according to their personal wants and their pleasures. Jesus told his disciples, Jesus tells you, if you choose to be his disciple, that you must follow him. Not only will discipleship, however, mean radical life change from loving and freely participating in sin and hate, to hating and laboring to put that sin to death, but it will also be very costly. So you see, there's demands made, but there's also costs incurred. Discipleship, following Jesus, might very well cost many of us our earthly comforts. It might very well cost us earthly relationships. It might lead to the restriction of our societal freedoms and liberties. It might ultimately issue in the loss of your very life. You, this morning, if you've turned to Jesus in faith, if you've truly turned to Jesus in faith, you may have to endure sufferings, persecutions, slanders, and various other hardships for the sake of Christ, as so many have who've come before us, and as so many around the world, even now at this very moment, endure. The apostles themselves didn't escape the enormous earthly consequences of devotion to Christ and obedience to his mission to make disciples of all nations. The Apostle Paul, for example, just read his letters, read the book of Acts. He faced countless trials, countless hardships, including but not limited to beatings and malicious slander and imprisonment and eventually execution at the hands of the Romans. We also read in the book of Acts that Herod the king laid violent hands on Christians. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And if you perform even the most surface-level exploration of what the early Christians suffered for their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will see it's pretty harrowing. Tradition records all but one of the apostles being executed, and that in a variety of ways. Crucifixions, beheadings, stonings, being run through with spears, being clubbed on the head. And not only that, but from A.D. 64 all the way through to A.D. 311, ten consecutive Roman emperors to varying degrees and extents brutally persecuted the followers of Jesus Christ. This is the cost that, they, that was incurred by their decision to follow Christ. Turning to Jesus exacted an immeasurable cost as Christians were slandered and blamed for natural disaster by the emperor Marcus Aurelius in an effort to turn the Roman populace against them and to raise the heat of persecution. After him, Emperor Decius led Rome to an enthusiastic return to paganism, which in turn inflamed the Roman populace, leading to an empire-wide recommitment to the extermination of Christians. Emperor Valerian, after him, confiscated the property of those who had been outed as or known to be disciples of Jesus and outlawed, outright outlawed, their assembling for worship. And finally, in the worst of the persecutions, Emperor Diocletian destroyed any and all buildings and houses used for services of worship to Christ. He called for people to give up the scriptures so that they might be gathered and burned. And he suspended and revoked all civil and societal rights for those who were known to be Christians. This heat of persecution, this cost ratcheted up for almost three centuries and the blood of the martyrs flowed freely throughout the empire as a result. And all of this, all of this is simply the cost of discipleship. 
the possible outcome for every single one of us who follows after the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our time, and in our particular place, martyrdom is pretty rare. But know this, you will, as a disciple of Christ, face the hatred of this world because your very presence in it, as ambassador to Christ, as representative of Christ, as obedient witness to Christ in this world, is unwelcome. You and I are odious too. We are a grave insult to a world that is well in love with itself. As the gospel we proclaim sheds light on wickedness and sinfulness and self-idolatry. And we know, right, this is in spite of the fact that you and I are holding out to the world the offer of eternal, abundant life by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are holding out to the world the most wonderful news in the whole universe. And the responses will vary. Some will believe. Others will become your enemy. Some might even seek your worldly downfall. Do you see the great external costs exacted from those who turn to Christ and become his disciple? We must recognize that discipleship doesn't simply result in such external persecutions and hardships. But also, to all would-be disciples, Jesus makes some rather towering demands and issues some of the most impossible ultimatums to those who would accept the call to be his disciple. And as we come to Matthew 18, Jesus presents yet another, even more, yet another difficult, even more, and another unattainable ultimatum. Something we cannot, in and by our own strength, achieve. Yet it's an essential aspect and an essential quality of those who truly follow Jesus Christ. Listen, if any would enter the kingdom of God, they must humble themselves like a child. If any would enter the kingdom of God, they must humble themselves like a child. This call of Jesus strikes at the very trajectory of the natural human heart. The great early church father, Athanasius, writing in his great work called Against the Heathen, I know they named their books differently back then, explains the trajectory of idolatry in, his, in this work. And he tells of humanity, quote, losing their reason and being plunged into the lusts and imaginations of carnal things. And forgetting the knowledge and glory of God, their reasoning became dull, and they made gods for themselves of things seen, glorifying the creature rather than the creator. Now, for Athanasius, this is the surface level of our depravity. This is the surface level. This is the, this is the initial phase of our tra uh, trajectory to self-exaltation. Because he said, it doesn't stop there, and continues, he said, the next step is for such darkness of mind that they have even... They even devise for themselves and make gods of things that have no existence at all, nor any place among things created. So the first step is you create gods that represent creation. Then you make gods that have no being in creation. Meaning, they sought to deify and worship their own wickedness. For example, pleasure and lust were deified in the Greek and Roman world under the names of Eros and Aphrodite. But things didn't end there. That's just the next level in the descent. 
Even though he wrote this 1,600 years ago, Athanasius, looking at the state of humanity, got it right. Humanity descended even further when he said this. This is the thinking of humanity. If we are to make gods, we ought to be ourselves gods. For that which makes must needs be better than that which it makes. So you see, according to Athanasius, the descent, right? You start by making gods of things seen. Then you start by making gods of things that are unseen, your passions and your pleasures. Then you move from there to just making yourself God. And that is the descent. That is the trajectory. That is the natural bent of the human heart. It's in the direction of self-exaltation. From suppressing the knowledge of God, replacing it with gods of our creation, to finally deifying our own self. This is the status. This is the rank. This is the seat to which the natural human flesh hopes to ascend. Being itself God. And as Jesus constantly does, consistently does, here in our text this morning, he sets the axe to the root of such a wickedness. And he told the disciples, such aims, such a trajectory has no place among my disciples. This proud and all too common aim at elevating self is a contradiction to the life that Jesus calls us to. And for those who refuse to humble themselves, who simply will not lay down their relentless focus on the self, they probably, and hear me, they probably haven't even entered into the kingdom of God in the first place and are therefore still dead in their transgressions and sins. Now, we haven't mentioned it up to this point, but Matthew's gospel account is structured in such a way that it's action followed by prolonged discourses or teaching blocks by Jesus. There are five major teaching blocks, and they're all very important in this gospel. The first is the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 to 7. Then in chapter 10, we've got Christ's discourse to the disciples as he sends them to proclaim the kingdom among the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then we've got the kingdom parables in chapter 13. And then later in verses 23 to 25, we've got the Olivet Discourse. And Matthew 18 is the fourth of five major discourses in Matthew's gospel. And it focuses exclusively on the necessity of humility among his disciples. And the chapter begins with an object lesson on humility coupled with a command, with a non-negotiable order that we humble ourselves, that we be humbled. And then the rest of the discourse, the rest of Matthew chapter 18, expands upon what our life together as humbled disciples ought to look like. We ought to look like a gathered community of lowly believers, unconcerned with our own status, unconcerned with our own importance, who welcome all other disciples regardless of their status or lack thereof, welcoming each other in the name of our common Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, concerned with the welfare of our fellow disciples, laboring for reconciliation when we sin against each other, and forgiving all of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way that Christ has forgiven us. This is where the chapter is going to go. Over the next few weeks, we're going to touch on all these most precious and pressing truths, but this morning, we begin here in verse 1. Look at it. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Matthew, as he tends to do, prefers to remain brief favoring a more direct route to the primary lesson, while Mark likes to fill in the details. 
So listen to what Mark said in, in chapter 9, verse 33 to 34, writing about the same event. And they came to Capernaum, and when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they argued with one another about who was the greatest. So we'll give the disciples a little bit of credit here. At least, according to Mark's account, they knew that the argument they were engaged in was rather foolish. They knew that they ought to be a little bit embarrassed for having engaged in it. But the question I had as I was reading is, what could have led them to such an absurd and half-witted debate? I mean, think about this, what this must have sounded as 12 grown men tried to convince and argue with each other for supremacy over each other. I mean, let's, let's just imagine the scene. They're all walking together and one of them pipes up. Hey, guys, I was just thinking. When Jesus finally does establish his kingdom, guess what? It's going to be me in the primary seat of honor because, there re- and there really is no question about this, I'm just better than you guys. And in response, one of the others pipes up, What? Come on. There's got to be something wrong with you. I mean, listen to my resume. And he lists off all the things. It's way better than yours. If anyone is going to get that most prestigious seat in the kingdom, it's going to be me because I'm the greatest among us. And add a few more disciples making their claims and summarizing their accomplishments. And you've got, in my estimation, what seems to be the most ridiculous argument ever. And even the disciples recognized this fact because when Jesus asked them what it was that they were debating, none of them wanted to speak up. Not even Peter. And Peter loves to speak up. Now, The disciples are engaged in the debate clearly and out loud. But you and I perhaps are too sophisticated to come right out and say it, right? But as Jesus will soon make clear, we act just like the disciples, with pride and self-importance. We speak the same sort of foolishness, just not as openly and clearly as the disciples, when we hold on to anger against another believer when we remain forgiving with an unforgiving with another believer. Both of these, Jesus will tell us, are the equivalent of saying, I'm greater than you. How dare you do or say or act in a way that I don't like? Don't you know who I am? We ought also to recognize the foolishness of being angry and unforgiving with our fellow brothers and sisters because in so doing, we act just like the disciples on this road at this time or in this house at this time. So Jesus asks, what is it you're holding on to? What is it you're holding on to with one of your brothers and sisters? Because when he asks you that question, you will feel just as foolish as the disciples. You might be able to justify your unforgiveness and anger to yourself, but imagine having to justify it to Jesus. It'll sound oh so foolish, won't it? So here, the disciples instead remain silent until finally, finally, one or more of them did ask the question. They knew that Jesus knew what it was that they were talking about, and so they asked the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So how did they get to this point? 
How did they get to this point that they would argue about this and then proceed to ask Jesus this question? Matthew links the debate with what had just taken place. In the very beginning of verse 1, he says, at this time, or at that time. At what time? In and around the time of the events that were described in chapter 17. Remember what happened in chapter 17? Remember in verses 1 to 3, when Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. You remember, Peter and James and John spent time on that mountain with Jesus, witnessing the most glorious of sights that of a glorified Jesus speaking to such colossal Old Testament figures as Moses and Elijah. And while Peter and James and John were up on the mountain enjoying such an awesome and exclusive sight, where were the other nine? Not on the mountain. Jesus hadn't taken them. Instead, they found themselves on the foot of the mountain with faith too little to heal a suffering boy that had been brought to them by, their des- by his desperate father. They found themselves embroiled in an argument with scribes because of their inability to heal this boy. And when Jesus arrived on the scene with Peter and James and John, Jesus healed the boy and then told the other nine that they couldn't, they couldn't because of their little faith in chapter 17, verse 20. They couldn't drive the demon out of the little boy because of their little faith faith. Now imagine being Peter and James and John here. You've just experienced the mountaintop glory, this exclusive time with Jesus, and now on top of that you hear Jesus tell the other nine that their faith is just too small. The feelings of self-importance and pride begin to swell as they consider the privileges, Peter, James, and John consider the privileges, consider the access, consider the honors that Christ has given to them and seemingly withheld from the others. So they start believing their own self-hype, which, by the way, is the most dangerous thing any of us can do. They think themselves greater than the other disciples. And so on the way, one of them strikes up a conversation to this effect. You will see that, generally speaking, it's James, John, and Peter, who bring this subject up in the Gospels. They strike up a conversation to this effect. Guys, there has to be some sort of hierarchy here, right? When Jesus does indeed return the kingdom to Israel, which one of us is going to possess the seat of honor in the kingdom? Who will hold the most important office in the kingdom? Which one of us is greatest in the kingdom? And even though Jesus will correct them here, even though he will rebuke them here, the disciples will regularly return to this dispute moving forward. We read, for example, in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, as Jesus reclined at the table on the night when he was betrayed, just after instituting the Lord's Supper, after sharing the Lord's Supper with them, immediately after, we read in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, a dispute among, arose among the disciples as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Right after the Lord's Supper. And the continuing controversy even led the mother of James and John to approach Jesus, kneel before him, and say to him, or ask Jesus, to Matthew 20, 24, to say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. 
It's utter foolishness. But before we go scoffing at the repeated failures and dullness of the disciples here, just remember how prone you and I are to the same weakness. Remember that the disciples are as weak and as frail as us. We are as weak and as frail as them. And these disciples reflect to us what is true about ourselves. There is a reason why Jesus, along with the apostles, spend so much time commending humility and rebuking pride. There is a reason why the Old Testament authors repeatedly speak about, repeatedly tell about events which speak to pride and speak proverbs about the evils of pride. We read a number of them at the beginning of the service. Solomon's Proverbs, however, are relentless in their counsel against pride, with such wisdom as pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now, why be so persistent in reminding us through every single generation about the evils of pride and the necessity of humility? It's because all of us, all of us who are our disciples must be ever on guard against the proud, self-seeking, self-serving disposition that is so natural to our flesh. And even more, because as James wrote in chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And for the true disciple... It's a grace of the Lord that he intervenes in your life to keep you humble. In one of my favorite and most revisited portions of Scripture, we see the lengths to which our gracious Lord goes to keep his people from pride, to keep them weak and lowly and dependent upon him. In 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, the Apostle Paul speaks of a situation in his own life that is very similar to that of Peter, James, and John on the mountaintop with Jesus. Here, the Apostle records or recounts his experience of grand visions and grand revelations of the Lord. He records the time or recounts the time when he was caught up into the third heaven into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, he said, I don't know. And Paul heard things there that man that cannot be told and which man may not utter. Now, imagine the wonder of such a mountaintop experience. And Paul, being a human being prone to the same weaknesses as each of us, might very well, like Peter, James, and John, let such an encounter go to his head. God chose me to see what I saw. Who else can say that they have been caught up into paradise? I must be pretty special. I must be the greatest of the apostles. The answer to that, who else can say they've been caught up into paradise, is no one. And just as an aside, if you have any of those trips to heaven or hell books in your library, throw them out. They're all heresy. But back to uh, our text. The Lord knowing the frailties of his servants, knowing the fallibility inherent to even the best of men, kept Paul from becoming proud, kept Paul from becoming conceited 
in a rather surprising way. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Listen to them. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You see it twice, right? Twice. To keep me from becoming conceited. Such mountaintop experience might lead to the conceit of even one like Paul. And to keep him from becoming conceited, the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh. Now that's a grand example to be sure, but it's not only mountaintop experiences like those of Peter and Paul and James and John, but think how easy it is for each and every one of us to allow the smallest amounts of status, the smallest amounts, the smallest amounts to go to our heads. Just speaking as a pastor, as I look out and I see numerous pastors fall because they are pride, proud, and they are arrogant and they disqualify themselves from ministry, I continually ask myself, how did they get to this point? How did they get to this point where they are so proud that they wouldn't hear the rebukes or they, wouldn't, they, they thought of themselves so highly that it led to their downfall. What are some of the small decisions they could have made to keep themselves from becoming proud and disqualifying themselves from ministry and bringing disrepute upon the name of the Lord? For myself, I've been keeping up a little list. This is just for me. It might be good for you to do the same thing. get a little list here of just, I call it my pastoral protections list, and I keep adding to them. I wrote, how does a pastor keep from falling into traps, from being choked in the snares of so many pastors that have disqualified themselves from ministry? What are the little things? What are the small and incremental decisions we make that had we stopped and addressed them, had we dealt with them way early, would have mitigated the the disastrous profaning of God's name? And so here are a few that I wrote. These are just for me. You can make them a list for yourself too. It'd probably be good. Don't ever buy into any hype that might be associated with you, your name, or the ministry that God has called you to. Never think anyone owes you anything. Never tell yourself, you deserve this. That's a big one, right? Never think of yourself as better than or above any of the congregation. You are not a CEO. You are not more worthy than they. You are a shepherd who owes God your service to his people. Do not labor to gain a platform, to become a celebrity pastor, to pack the house in order to feed your ego. Be content with the simple, unadulterated joy of ministering to God's people in the local church context to which he has called you, regardless of his reach, its numbers, or anything else. Shepherd well there. When consensus is difficult to attain, when growth and movement toward a goal becomes more slowly than you'd like, resist the urge to become an autocrat. It's quite easy to convince ourselves that these people simply need us to take over, or they're too naive to understand that I'm the only one with the know-how to get the job done, and in the process bulldoze through others rather than work with them. This mentality only festers and breeds into greater and greater pride and arrogance. Never, que- never get angry when people question you. You are never too important or spiritual to be questioned. 
If you get angry when people question you, you're on your way to a great fall. It's a small thing that leads to bigger things. Never command or assume that you deserve any status or respect. Never think you're qualified or smart enough to be a pastor. Depend on the Holy Spirit at all times. And finally, (laughs) recognize that the ornery members of the church, those who keep you on your toes, they're there to keep you humble. They're there to ensure that you know your faults because they always keep them before your eyes. These are a blessing in so many ways to you from the Lord. If they keep you weak, remember the words of the Apostle Paul, that in weakness the Lord is strong. In that weakness our pride isn't given the kindling it requires to explode into flame. So this is what I do. might be beneficial for you as well. What are some of the things, the little decisions that you can start making and holding yourself to in order to keep from becoming what God opposes? And it can even be more subtle. I mean, you've got mountaintop experiences, you've got pastor or leadership experiences, but it can even be more subtle than that. I remember when I started out in ministry decades ago, I organized a concert for teens in the city. It was a concert to give their bands an opportunity to play for actual people than just in their basements and garages. And just let me tell you, it was awful. And when I was setting up this event, I asked a few of the young men to act as security for the event. Because I didn't know who was going to come, I didn't know who was going to show up. And the guys I had selected to be security had otherwise been relatively quiet and easygoing, but on the night of the concert, as they donned their new bright yellow security t-shirts, everything changed. They became altogether different people, as the small amount of authority conferred upon them led to a level of hostility, led to a level of pride in their position that I had never seen from them before. They noticed every every little seeming infraction and they went out of their way to literally, and I mean literally, grab concert goers, carry them through the door, and throw them out of the building. And all I did was give them a yellow shirt that said security on it. And look what happened. Oh, the temptations of pride. Oh, the destructive force that is pride. See the devastation brought about by a few people, and now imagine a church. Imagine our church. Imagine 200-plus people all focused on self-exaltation, all proud, all filled with high and lofty thoughts about themselves, all considering themselves greater than their fellow disciples. Unless a church hears the command of Christ here, this church, any church, will be crippled and the name of our Lord will be brought into disrepute. If any would be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must leave behind this most wicked and divisive tendency. We must not be like disciples who argue amongst themselves as to who's the greatest. We must, as the great reformer John Calvin says, Instead of laboring with one consent, these disciples, as they ought to have done, to render mutual assistance and to secure for their brethren as large a share of honors as they gained for themselves, they strove with wicked ambition to excel one another. May that never be for us. Oh, how easy it is for us to turn our thoughts in on ourselves, to think that everyone around us must bend and shape and organize themselves according to us 
That's a sign of an awful high degree of pride in your own soul. To be so consumed with ourselves and with what we think everyone ought to give to us, to say about us, to act around us or toward us. How easy it is for us, much like these disciples, to consider ourselves in so many ways the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so how did Jesus respond to this question? Look at verses 2 and 3. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now before I speak to what this does mean, let's clarify what Jesus is not saying here because I have heard people warp and twist his words here to promote what I call childish faith as opposed to childlike humility. And this is more common than you might expect. As I was reading different applications of this text, one person said this. Jesus said to become like children. He told us to be more childlike. So go out and learn to be more spontaneous, more curious, more in touch with your emotions. Be like children who accept people as they are, who play and enjoy life. Get out there and reconnect with the activities you loved as a child. Go ride a bike, go fly a kite, go pick some dandelions and eat some ice cream. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Others use the text to chastise churches that don't focus more of their resources on children's ministries. While others claim that Jesus is here calling for simplicity of faith in the sense that you don't need to spend time learning doctrine and theology like a child, just let it be you and Jesus. Again, that is not what Jesus is saying. Because let it be, let's be clear, all of these interpretations fly in the face of Scripture's clear teaching elsewhere. And we let Scripture interpret Scripture In 1 Corinthians 13.11, for example, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. The point being made here is that the level of speaking, thinking, and reasoning possessed by children is inadequate. No child is to remain in their childishness forever. And so Paul sought to prevent the Corinthian believers from being satisfied with a childish faith. He sought to fan them into increased love and maturity of faith, something he repeated again in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, when he said, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And as Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers, and as we heard from uh, Pastor Robert in his prayer, the reason the Lord has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and pastors and teachers to the church is for this reason, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." In other words, God has blessed the church with a multitude of leaders to keep it from remaining childish in its knowledge of Christ. So, 
If this text is not about a childish faith, what is Jesus calling for here? He is calling for childlike humility. Childlike humility. And in order to understand this, we have to recognize and appreciate what the status of children was in the ancient society where this was written. In the ancient world, children children were not viewed as highly in society as they are today. In, in many ways in our culture, everything revolves around children. Parents can oftentimes make idols out of their children and will go so far as to completely reshape their lives and change their own views, even their views on biblical issues. I see it all the time in order to accommodate our children. That would never have happened in the ancient world. In our day, we let our children reign supreme in our households, letting them set the tone in our households, letting them rule the roost, so to speak. In many cases, we're afraid to challenge and to correct and to train and to rebuke our children for fear of their rebellion or their lack of friendship. Well, that might be how things went go today, It's not what it was like in the ancient world. In the ancient world, children were at the very bottom of the social order. They had no status. They had no rights. They had no power. And they were completely helpless and completely dependent. A child could make no claims to greatness, and they knew that no one would listen if they did. They could make no demands upon anyone and therefore possessed no delusions about their situation. In the ancient world, children were nothing. They were less than nothing. Does that help you understand a little bit what Jesus is calling us to recognize? When he says, unless you become like children? The lives of children in the ancient world were such that they simply served as necessary in the household without any complaint. Recognizing that any claims to their greatness would simply be laughed at. So now again, consider the scene. The disciples had been arguing with each other about who is the greatest among them in the kingdom of heaven. Each of them vying for the title of greatest. And when they asked Jesus to set the record straight... He calls to himself a little child, places that child amongst them. Remember, this no-status, no-rank child in the midst of the group, and he points to them and says, unless you turn and become like this child, unless you see yourself, become yourself like this humble child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I just want to explore, notice a few things here in verse 3. He begins with, truly I say to you. When you see that phrase, Jesus is about to say something very important. Pay close attention. He wants them to listen very closely. He says, truly I say to you, and he said, unless you turn. The word here for turn is in the passive, meaning unless you are turned. Unless you experience an inward change, or as he said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless you are born from above 
and you therefore repent of your present proud, ambitious, and jealous attitudes, unless you recognize your own helplessness and respond accordingly, throwing yourself upon the mercy of the Lord, unless you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy before God and accept for yourself the lowest status and rank. Remember, this child is nothing. He is less than nothing. Unless you come to this place, you will not you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the exact phrase of Jesus there, right? Look again at that phrase. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So you see what's happened here. The disciples had been arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus here calls them and calls on them and on all future disciples to consider not whether they are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but whether they are or will get into the kingdom of heaven in the first place. Without the new birth, without turning, all of which results in becoming like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And only now, as Jesus, as the disciples must consider whether they are truly in the kingdom or not, only now does Jesus actually explicitly answer the question of who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever brings himself to low low in attitude, whoever truly appreciates and understands how lowly we are before the Lord, and out of that knowledge serves, forgives, and honors others, these are the greatest. Mark records Jesus as saying, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all in in the same story. And Luke records Jesus adding, he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. So they clarify what's happening here, right? The child represents the last of all and the servant of all. The the child represents the one who is least of all. And anyone who has that is great. And this is the mark of true conversion. This is the mark of a turn to the Lord. Because listen, discipleship is a humbling path. A narrow road of self-denial. Recognizing not your greatness, but your spiritual poverty, sinfulness, and corruption. Understanding that you and I are way worse than we could ever imagine. That we have nothing to offer the Lord in return for His grace in return for His mercy. We bring nothing to the table that the Lord does not already own. All we can do is beat our chest and cry out to the Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the more we understand and grasp our situation before God, the more humility will characterize our dealings with one another. As we see that every single one of us is in the same boat. We are all people saved from an ocean of corruption and sin. People who are delivered and redeemed from the penalty of eternal death by the magnificent grace of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. And this, recognizing this, impacts our life together. So how can anyone know if they are truly a citizen of the kingdom? According to Jesus, one of the primary marks of a true disciple, one who has been turned and saved, is humility. We are converted from pride to childlike humility, from Pharisees who think highly of ourselves, saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man over here, to the sinner who casts himself on the mercy of God. From high and conceited thoughts about ourselves and our worth, 
from thinking about how those around us ought to orient their lives in our direction, accommodating us, appreciating us, celebrating our ideas and our pra- recognizing our practices and sensitivities and importance to lowly thoughts of ourselves, preferring others above ourselves, obeying Scripture's exhortation in Romans chapter 12 to love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. And as we do this, we imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. We follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we see in Philippians 2. As the Apostle Paul wrote, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Now, who truly is the greatest in the kingdom? Is it not Jesus himself? And see what Jesus did. Perfect, sinless Jesus. Look at what he did. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and made his dwelling among us. And he didn't go about proudly seeking his own earthly status and exaltation, even though the disciples, even though the crowds, even though Satan continually tried to push him in that direction to taking uh, on the, uh, the throne and being ruler over all the kingdoms of the, of the world. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself to the point of death. And not just any sort of death, but the most horrendous, torturous, and cursed type of death. Death on a cross. Why? For you and for me. He did this to save all who would believe in his name. He did this to save all who would turn to him truly as a disciple. And what is the result? Philippians continues and reveals to us the result of this humility. Look at chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Do you see that? Jesus is humble and is then exalted. The humble service of Christ resulted in his being highly exalted by his Father in heaven. And you and I, while we will never be given the name that is above every other name, because that honor is reserved for Jesus and Jesus alone, because he's the only one worthy of that, The concept of the Lord's exaltation of the humble in due time is a promise that is repeated to you and I throughout Scripture. Jesus said in Luke 14, 11, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James wrote, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And one more, Peter wrote, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So would you enter the kingdom of heaven? Would you come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
those who humble themselves before the Lord, those who are turned by the Lord, becoming like humble children for the sake of Jesus, they will be exalted in the end. But listen to me here. For those who labor in the here and now in pride, looking for rank, looking for status, looking for importance, for those of you in the here and now who refuse to turn and be turned and become like little children, humble children, the opposite of everything you aim for will come to pass. You will be brought low and you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So in closing, I pray that for the glory of Christ and the salvation of your soul, that you would turn to Jesus and accept the terms of discipleship. As we started out saying, the cost is high. But in the end, the rewards are greater than anything we could ever imagine. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, Jesus is worth the cost. Father, you are amazing, you are glorious, you are wonderful, you are holy. So Lord, we know your word in that you despise pride. As you say in the Proverbs, the arrogant in heart are an abomination to you and they will not go unpunished. And I pray that you would help us all to hear that that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, would be working in each and every one of us right now, turning us so that we might become like humble children. Father, may we be those who don't strive for rank and status, but recognize that we are nothing, less than nothing, and have no claim on rank and status until that day when you exalt us. I pray that you would help us to be gracious and forgiving and humble with each other, accepting one another as the Lord has accepted us. pray that you would help us not to hold on to bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and in so doing act just like the disciples who argued, over about, argued with each other about who is greater. I pray that when our brother or our sisters sin against us, that we would be quick to forgive, recognizing that you've forgiven us of oh so much more. And in so doing, may your name be glorified, May your mission spread forward. May you be honored. In Christ's precious name, amen.